Good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you, uh, continuing our series for this whole year in Luke's Gospel. Uh, we're going to go chapter 19, verses 11 to 44 today. Can I encourage you to have a Bible open as we try to read through these verses, think about what they mean and how they apply to us as Christians. Let's ask God to help us now. Let's pray. Father, do please speak to us. Speak to us from your word and please give us hearts willing to not just understand but to obey uh, what we hear. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I visited uh, an old lady from our church. Uh, she was very ill. She was, in fact, uh, she was dying. And we were chatting about her life. She planned her funeral service with me. Uh, and, uh, we were, uh, and as we were talking, I said to her, how are you feeling about dying? Do you feel ready? Are, are you frightened to die? And she said this. She said, she said, Jeff, I've lived my whole life trusting in Jesus. I've always relied on him. I've tried hard to serve him. Now I get to find out if it was all worth it. Now I get to find out if it was all worth it. What do you think? Do you think it's worth it? Do you think it's worth serving Jesus? It's not always obvious, is it? It's not always clear here on earth that it makes any difference. We can't see Jesus. We can't see God. Uh, we don't get a pat on the back from God when we do something and uh, don't necessarily see any impact at all. People who, people who don't serve Jesus seem to get on just as well in this world, in this life, as people who do serve Jesus. Uh, you serve Jesus, you end up getting not allowed to be the president of the Essendon Football Club or whatever it is. So is it worth it? When our passage here in uh, Luke today, we come to the end of what's been a long journey. Uh, Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. Do you remember it was all the way back in chapter 9 and verse 51 that we started this journey to Jerusalem? Just come back with me. See if you're a good Bible flicker, if you can call God on the telephone or something. Um, Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. And just notice the way Luke puts it, because it's very important. Luke 9.51, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So notice what's going to happen. He's going to go up to heaven. So he's been on this final journey to Jerusalem. And all the way since chapter 9 and verse 22, Jesus has been telling everyone what's going to happen. He's told them exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Um, you can jump back to chapter 9, verse 22, or it's going to come up as well. Jesus said, here's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And if you've been journeying with us through Luke's Gospel this year, you'll remember Jesus has said it over and over again. In fact, six times, six times he said the same things in Luke's Gospel. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. After that, he'll be raised to life. And over and over again, Jesus has made it perfectly clear his kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom. He's not going to come, conquer the Roman Empire, set up a castle in Jerusalem. His kingdom is going to be a heavenly kingdom. He's been telling people over and over and over again, 
But as we come now to the end of Jesus' journey, as he arrives in Jerusalem, unfortunately, it seems like nobody has gotten the point. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, people still think that he's going there to establish his kingdom on earth. For the disciples, that means they're expecting greatness. We're on a winner here, they're thinking. In a couple of weeks' time, Warren's going to take you through the, the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And while he's telling them about how he's going to die the next day, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest when he sets up his castle. We're on a winner here, they're thinking. Soon Jesus is going to be king. Look at all these great miracles he does. And we're going to be in the places of honour. There should be plenty of money, plenty of food, plenty of laughs, plenty of popularity, plenty of power, plenty of influence, fame and fortune. Here we come. As the disciples. For the religious leaders, they're worried. They also think that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom, but they don't think Jesus is the king sent from God. They think he's an imposter. And they're worried Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem, form an army, start a revolt against Rome, and then Rome is going to come and squash them, destroy them. You see, uh, for example, in John's Gospel, let me just show you this, where the religious leaders had a meeting to discuss what to do about Jesus as he was heading into Jerusalem. Here's what they said. The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. If we let Jesus go on like this, gaining popularity, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Can you see what they're scared of? That Jesus is going to set up this, or try to set up this earthly kingdom. They don't think he's the king from God. And so that to protect the nation, they're opposing Jesus, doing everything they can to stop him. So you see the situation. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. Everyone thinks this is it. Time for the kingdom. For the disciples, this is the time of our greatness. For the religious leaders, we've got to stop him. Jesus knows what people are thinking. And so... In Jericho, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus tells this parable. Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. Have a look with me. Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, Jesus' parable, it's actually based on a true story. Uh, Herod the Great was the king just before Jesus was born and up to his birth. Uh, in 4 BC, when Herod died, his son Archelaus wanted to take over and be king in Judea. But of course, it's Roman Empire. And so for Archelaus to become king in Judea, he had to go back to Rome to visit Emperor Augustus. He had to get Augustus to confirm him as the king. After Archelaus went off to Rome, the Jews sent a delegation of 50 leaders to Rome to protest his appointment. But the delegation failed. Archelaus returned to Israel with royal power and he made his enemies pay very, very dearly for opposing him. At Jericho, where Jesus is when he tells the parable, it's a very significant place for Jesus to call to mind this story about Archelaus. Because after he became king, Archelaus went on to build a big palace for himself in Jericho. So you can imagine, with Archelaus's palace in the background, Jesus picks up the story about him, how he went to Rome to become king, and he uses it in this parable. 
So in the parable, a man goes off to another country to be crowned king, ringing bells. Uh, but people, people respond in three ways. Some people oppose him. They don't want him to be the king. Other people, they serve him faithfully until he returns. And then there's a third group who, they don't oppose him, but they don't really serve him either. They don't serve him in his absence. So three kinds of people, enemies, faithful servants, and unfaithful servants. And for each, each of the people, there's a different outcome. The enemies, well, they're defeated and destroyed. The faithful servants, they're rewarded. And the unfaithful servants, well, they're embarrassed. Let's read the parable from verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minors. All kinds of debate in our Bible study about how you say that. Some people say minas, some people say minas. In fact, there's no I in the Greek. It's minas, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's too hard to say, so let's call them minas, okay? Um, he called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Three different kinds of people and three different outcomes. Enemies who get defeated and destroyed. Faithful servants who get rewarded with enormous reward. And then unfaithful servants who get no reward. Now, remember why Jesus is telling the parable. It was back in verse 11. He's telling the parable because people think the kingdom of God is coming at once, coming straight away. So what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Okay, that's enough work from me. I'm going to give you three minutes to discuss it. Um, I've got three questions for you to answer. They're on the screen. So about, about one question per minute. First question is, who is this king? Who's this king who goes away and comes back? And, and what does it mean 
for people who think the kingdom of God is coming straight away. Okay, you get the first question, who's the king and what's the point of the parable? Second question, who are the enemies? Who are the enemies who oppose the king and what does the parable mean for them if they think the kingdom of God is going to come straight away? And then third question, who are the servants? Who are the faithful servants? Who are the unfaithful servants? What does the parable mean for them if they think the kingdom will come straight away? You get the questions? Three kinds of people. Who's the king? Who are the enemies? Who are the servants? And what does this parable mean if they think the kingdom is coming straight away? Okay, turn to three or four people around you. If someone's sitting by themselves, call them into your group. Don't let people sit by themselves. Okay, call them into your group. Three minutes. Three minutes to answer the questions. Okay, should we come back together? How did you go? It's a little bit tricky, isn't it? It's a bit trickier than it uh, first looks. I actually was in a meeting with a whole group of ministers uh, earlier this week, and I put these questions to them, and um, yeah, it was, it's tricky. It's tricky. There's a few, few difficult bits to it. Uh, all right, I'll give you my attempts to answer the question. Oh, I'll get you to help me. Who, who's the king who goes away and comes back? Jesus. You think it's Jesus? Yeah, the hard man and the... Yeah, um, yeah. Reminds me a bit of that uh, story of the Sunday school teacher who says to the children, uh, what's grey and furry and eats gum leaves? And the child puts up the hand and go, goes, uh, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds a lot like a koala. <laughs> um, okay. um, I think it's Jesus, don't you? I think it's Jesus. What does it mean in terms of the kingdom coming straight away? The kingdom's not coming straight away. He's going away to heaven to receive his kingship, to be given all authority in heaven and earth. There he'll sit at the right hand of God and wait for all his enemies to be made his footstool. It's not till the end. It's not till Jesus returns that he'll establish fully his eternal kingdom on earth. Question two, who are the enemies? Who are the enemies? What did you come up with for the enemies who oppose the king? Yeah, religious leaders, probably. In context, it's religious leaders, I think, isn't it? The people who are trying to oppose Jesus. Uh, what does the parable mean for them? Well, they're all worried about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, fighting against Romans and being destroyed. They've got to stop worrying about their political power and their links with the Romans and start worrying about God's eternal kingdom. Worry less about now, worry more about heaven. They need to submit themselves to Jesus as king, the eternal king. Question three. Who are, the, who are all the servants, faithful and unfaithful servants? It's a bit trickier, isn't it? I, I think it's talking about followers of Jesus but remember you've got kind of crowds following him and you've got disciples following there's a whole heap of people following Jesus with different views about him what does the parable mean for them if they think the kingdom is going to come straight away again it means they're wrong the kingdom is not going to come straight away they need to get out of their heads the notion that serving Jesus is going to bring earthly glory they need to get out of their heads that serving Jesus means sitting in a palace and getting manicures for the rest of your life. No, no, Jesus is going away. He's going to be in heaven. They need to serve Jesus in his absence. They need to look to Jesus' return and to heaven for reward. That's pretty much what you came up with? Yeah? No? Okay. It's a little bit tricky, the stuff about the, him being a hard man, isn't it? Um, although I reckon, it's, I reckon it's really important. I mean, I keep hearing Australians say to me, oh, I don't believe in a God who gets angry or something like that. And I go, are you joking? If God gets angry, you better submit to him and be on his right side. I think that's what Jesus is saying here as well. If he is hard, and he is going to be, then you really want to be on his right side. Okay, 
It brings us at last to the end of Jesus' journey. Comes into Jerusalem and Jesus does it deliberately in a way to show everyone that he's the king. So he, um, back in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah, it talks about when God will send his king to save his people. And uh, Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, Jesus has prearranged it that uh, he's able to ride into Jerusalem on a colt. To, to, to show everyone that he is, in fact, the promised king. It's all been arranged to give this clear message. Even though it's not going to be a kingdom the way people think, he is definitely the king. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. It's a clear message to Jerusalem, and the people get the message. They realise Jesus' claim. He's claiming to be king and they praise God. Verse 36. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The religious leaders are trying to stop it. They're terrified by this stage. They, they, Jesus, stop them. But he won't do it. And then he's got a dire warning for the people of Jerusalem. He knows that they will reject him. They have not recognised the day of God's coming. And he says that destruction is coming. Verse 41. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. They think stopping Jesus will bring peace. It's the opposite. Verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Jesus said that Jerusalem will be destroyed and that's what happened. Just about 35 years later, 70 AD, the Romans came, besieged Jerusalem and destroyed it. Terrible tragedy and also a terrible irony. The religious leaders are trying to stop the Romans from destroying them by stopping Jesus. But Jesus says that by rejecting him, that is the very, that is the very judgment that they're bringing on themselves, that Rome will come and conquer them. All right. All right. 
Can you see what's here then in Luke chapter 19? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. First he tells the parable because people think that his kingdom's coming at once. No, no, no. His kingdom is not coming immediately, but it will come. So for his enemies, they need to change their minds, submit to King Jesus. For his servants, serve him faithfully in his absence. Serve him faithfully until he finally returns because it's then that they'll see that it's worth serving Jesus. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a colt to clearly proclaim himself as king. Some people welcome him. Religious leaders oppose him. And Jesus says, it's going to be the end for Jerusalem. They'll be besieged and destroyed. Well, friends, things have happened exactly as Jesus said. Jesus' kingdom did not come at once. He went into Jerusalem and just as he'd said over and over again, he was rejected and mocked and spat on and crucified. Then on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven to receive his eternal kingdom, to be declared Lord, to receive all authority in heaven and on earth. Also, just as Jesus said, Jerusalem was destroyed, AD 70 by the Romans. And since then, well, since then we're waiting. Since then we're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to return. Waiting for that day when every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Waiting for that day when he brings reward to his servants. Things have happened exactly as Jesus told us to expect. Which brings us to applying this passage to ourselves because, friends, you and I, we are in this parable. We are exactly in the time when Jesus has gone away, been declared king, and we're waiting for him to return. We're here. Jesus has received his kingdom. Any day he could return. And just like in Jesus' parable, here today, there are three kinds of people. Sitting here today are three kinds of people. There are enemies of Jesus. There are unfaithful servants. And there are faithful servants. So... Which one are you? Are you an enemy of King Jesus? One thing that struck me over and over again as we've been through Luke's gospel is there's no middle ground. You're either Jesus' servant submitting to him as king or you are his enemy. There's no... You can't be neutral. You can't be Switzerland. I think... I think a lot of Australians think, oh, I'll just go on and I'll wait and see. I don't really know and and we'll see what happens when I die. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Not possible. Not possible. You're either his servant or you're his enemy. Friends, I hope you are not an enemy of Jesus. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. I hope you're not his enemy because if you are, King Jesus says you will be defeated and destroyed. He doesn't say it with malice. He says it with tears. If you reject Jesus as king, he is weeping over you like he wept over Jerusalem here in Luke's gospel. He is weeping over you, but you will not be spared. 
The day will come when you will be eternally destroyed. I hope you are not an enemy of Jesus. But the next question is this. Are you an unfaithful servant of Jesus? Yes, Jesus is your king. Yes, you've put your trust in him. Yes, you pray a prayer to have him forgive you and accept you. But here on earth, you're not serving. You're not worshipping him. You're not learning from his word. You're not praying to God through him. You're not living obediently to him as your king. You're not furthering his cause, sharing the gospel with those who don't know Jesus, encouraging and helping those who do know Jesus. There's an old joke about public servants. I believe it's completely unfair. I'm sure there are many, many hard-working, diligent, faithful public servants. But for the purposes of illustration, I'll tell you the joke anyway. Apparently there's a new rule in the public service. No one is allowed to look out the window in the mornings. Apparently, otherwise they'll have nothing to do in the afternoons. So, as I say, completely unfair. There are many hard-working public servants. But is that the kind of servant you are to King Jesus? You pretty much do nothing for him. You're no different to the non-Christians around you. Your hopes, the same as theirs. Your dreams, the same as theirs. The, the way you work, the way you relate to your family, what you long for, for your children, the way you invest your time, the way you invest your money, the, the way you invest your passion. You are no different from people who don't have Jesus as king. You're exactly the same as the people around you. Friends, the day is coming when you and I will have to give account to King Jesus for how we lived this life he gave us, for how we used the talents and the opportunities and, and the situations that he put us in. What will you have to show? What will you have done with the life that he's given you? Will you be one of those people who loses everything? Friend, if that is you, it is something that you will regret forever. When you are in glory and you look back at your life on earth, you will see it as one big missed opportunity. You spent your life working, pursuing stuff, but everything you worked for was left behind on earth. You brought nothing with you. Don't be an enemy of Jesus, and don't be an unfaithful servant. And our friends, let's be faithful, diligent servants of Jesus. And I have to say, I thank God that there are so many faithful, diligent servants of Jesus here at Chatswood, people who are different because Jesus is their king, people who do invest their minor, people who do use their gifts, use their talents to serve Jesus and his people. It is so thrilling that there are people here whose greatest passion is, the king, is king Jesus, who would make the same decision as Andrew Thorburn this week and Put Jesus before Essendon. Put, put Jesus before a million dollars a year. There are people here using their gifts to serve Jesus and his people. There are people here commending Jesus day by day by the way they live and the way they speak. But it can be hard sometimes, can't it? I mean, you work at your job and you get a pay packet at the end of the week. You work for Jesus... And you might not see any difference. 
Sometimes it might not feel like it's worth it when nobody appreciates what you do, when you're tired. Yes, it is hard for us to know now. Jesus is in heaven now. He's, he's absent in that sense. And it can be hard to know here on earth if it's worth serving Jesus. It might not seem to make any difference. But friends, I hope you can see from God's word today that it is, in fact, eternally worth serving Jesus. That lady I was talking about at the beginning, she did serve Jesus faithfully for decades here at church. And I trust that now she knows. Now she knows for sure it is worth it. I trust that to the extent that you hear it in heaven before Jesus returns, I trust that she's heard those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. And friends, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that we will also keep going, persevere, serving Jesus, looking forward, longing for those same words. Here's the result of a life well lived. To hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that the Lord Jesus is King, that all authority in heaven and earth is his, that he is at your right hand, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Heavenly Father, we pray that on that last day we will not be found to be his enemies, but we will be found to have been servants who have faithfully served him in his absence. Lord, help us to persevere knowing that the day is coming when we will see clearly that it is worth it. We pray in Jesus' name.